0: Welcome to Methods, a podcast from the ESRC National Centre for Research Methods. In today's episodes, slashing survey costs with satellites. We catch up with Marco Hensken and Ern Charanboon from the Centre for Tropical Medicine and Global Health at Oxford University as they travel from Thailand to Laos, where they're surveying villages about their medicine use as part of global efforts to tackle our growing resistance to antibiotics. I'd say it's
1: probably one of the top, if not the top, Item on global health agenda, on global health policy agendas these days. When you just look at the language, uh, you see a lot of references to apocalypse and crisis. When you see what the World Bank is saying, um, they would estimate some 10 million people dying every year if uh, if nothing is done about uh, antimicrobial resistance in general. It's not just going to cost lives; it's also going to cost us quite dearly economically. With the financial impact its probably worse than the global financial crisis that we've, uh, that we've just come out of. So we can probably say that the impact is going to be huge and it's a big problem and it, the impact is going to be worst in poor countries where infectious diseases are, are more common than in high-income countries. But at the same time, it's also a problem that spreads across borders. So basically every country in the world should have an interest in doing something about antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance more generally. There are quite a few ideas out there on how to tackle this problem, and as far as people's behavior is concerned, people's medicine use is concerned, when you look at the policy documents, everything seems to be about uh, education and awareness raising. Now, we belong to a small minority of researchers that who look at antimicrobial resistance from a, from a social sciences perspective which basically means that we study a lot of the context contributing to medicine use.
0: So in your research, you wanted to get a, a better understanding in this case of how people use medicines in rem, uh, remote rural areas of poorer countries, in this case, Thailand and Laos. And I'm speaking to you in Thailand today. So tell us more about um, what it was you are you're, you're hoping to establish.
2: So like Marco said, um, the antimicrobial resistance is quite a large scale issue and because everyone is talking about it from the WHO to local primary care units, but we feel like maybe the problem isn't being dealt with at the right spot. Maybe medicine use and in our case antibiotics is a problem not because people don't know how to use them correctly or because they're not educated enough or that education doesn't reach them. So that's why it's important for us to learn why people do what they do, how they handle their medicines, before we can find a proper solution. So in both countries, antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance are a high-ranking public health agenda. However, a very small fraction of these communities would know about the problem. Or even if they do, there are still other things that they have to care about more than what medicines they use or what effects these medicines can cause, like their day-to-day jobs, for example, or what they'll bring to the dining table tonight. So with a bu- uh, bigger concerns like this, antibiotic and resistance become less important, and that's something that education cannot solve alone. So rather than focusing on spreading the knowledge to everyone, we take a step back and try to understand the mechanisms, the reasons behind people's medicine use and health behavior in general, so that we can contribute as social scientists to a long-term solution in the future.
1: Uh, So to get at these points, our project then involves uh, collecting representative survey data in two provinces in Thailand and Laos, uh, we also collect social network surveys in five villages uh, where we interview every adult uh, who lives there. And to contextualize and interpret this data, we also collect uh, interviews alongside. Now, this information will then help us understand, or will help the world understand better, how people use medicine, the structural drivers of health behavior beyond education and knowledge, and also how new information about antibiotics is understood or misunderstood and how it can spread in these communities.
0: Fascinating stuff. So from a practical point of view, now reaching these remote areas and surveying the people there would potentially be a long, expensive and complicated business, but you've hit on a a rather cheaper and potentially even more effective method, one might say. So tell us what you did. You would say so.
1: (laughs) It might sound a bit silly, though, um, to to say it out loud because it involves using satellite maps. Uh, Google and Bing, it's really as simple as that as a tool to help us sample and implement rural surveys. I initially came up with the idea during my PhD research, and you can imagine, no money and no existing data to help me not enough time overseas. So just by using what was already freely available, we can actually enable, enable a lot of survey research projects that would otherwise be completely infeasible.
0: Now that's just a, a, quite incredible. So what information were you able to glean from the satellites that that made your research easier then?
1: On these satellite maps you can see where people live and we have publicly available information on the location of villages and towns. So once we draw a random sample of these villages we can then look at the the maps and scan the satellite image and see the actual building structures. Now this works particularly when our rural server contacts because you don't have high-rise apartments and all that so you know that a house is a house where people live. And if you know the context well enough then you can use this information to establish a sampling frame basically count all the houses there, then draw a random sample and select exactly the houses that you want to visit. And because you can even see the remotest settlements on those satellite maps, you're also less likely actually to miss people who don't live directly in the village. On top of that, these maps are also a fantastic monitoring and implementation tool because you can see, for example, the roads that lead up to a village and then you can plan the best routes to get there, save a lot of time. And that even if the actual roads are not charted formally on Google Maps, for instance. Yeah.
0: So on that note, what, what has it meant in terms of saving time and money for you and your, and your research?
1: You'd easily save more than a quarter of the cost and the duration of a normal feed survey if the alternative is the conventional approach. So depending on the scope, it can easily be 5, 10, 20, 50,000 pounds. If I just imagine having used a conventional method of field surveys in our research, it would have taken months of work to select our interviewees, or we would have used outdated information and miss a lot of unregistered population. To give you an example, um, we used the satellite maps to record more than 25,000 houses in our survey villages. Of these, then we selected 3,000 for interviews. And rather than going the conventional way of uh, recording these houses in the field with survey teams of 20 people, we could do it basically on our own, the two of us uh, from our desks. Now, it was still a good deal of work, um, but even then it's just a fraction of the labor and time that it, would have, that it would have taken otherwise. And so we can be quite efficient and yet rigorous during the planning stage. Uh, and that actually makes our budget go further. And uh, with the money that we have that we can assure really good quality during the data collection so you can say uh, we get uh, more bang for the buck
0: <laughs> it, d- it definitely sounds that way so i understand that your survey team has also recently forded a river in one area was th- and, and I'm guessing that was because that was an area where you were able to use the satellite imagery to see that there was a community you wanted to reach, but maybe the, the river was in the way and you needed to, 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 to get a way across. Have, have I understood that correctly? And and it was to ensure that you could get access, yeah? Yeah, we actually saw the bridge being built in a map
2: and we were like, uh, okay, we can't, but we're going to find the way. So yeah, we... <laughs> <laughs> Made the team for the river and we, I mean, we've always told the team to never take an easy way out I tell them that we've seen survey groups collecting data in shopping malls and town squares, but that's not our target group for our research this time, so we have worked very hard trying to involve all kinds of people from all kinds of areas to capture the diversity of our population and uh, thanks to the satellite maps and survey methods, we were able to ensure that, so you know, just please don't turn your car around just because there is a river in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not our main, main mission, but we take pride in reaching to the people that have never been reached to, just to make sure that they are heard and thus our data can really speak for them. So the team has interviewed many deaf people, for example, or talked through interpreters from more than 15 tribes in Thailand and Laos altogether, and even camped in a village without electricity. So I think by the end of the project, our team members felt more like a social worker rather than a research team member. (laughs) (laughs) So people thanked them for coming to the village and hearing what they have to say. In some villages, kids would even come and touch a car because they'd never seen that before in their lives. So despite the difficulties, I think everyone had a great time. And even though the data analysis isn't final yet, we know that we have made a small impact already on these people just by including them and learning about them.
0: Well, this is really inspiring. So what happens next in terms of actually carrying out the surveys and other aspects of the research?
1: As a matter of fact, um, we are just on our way to Laos, uh, where we're going tomorrow to conclude our survey. (laughs) Uh, But farewell to our fantastic team there. So we've just completed, or our team has completed, altogether 5,900 interviews. And because of electronic data collection and a lot of data cleaning that we can do basically on the way, on the fly, Uh, We basically hit the ground running, even though we've only just finished the survey.
2: And we're already um, producing a lot of output from the data that we have, even though the data collecting period just got wrapped up. For example, we just submitted a paper translating AMR, which talks about um, antimicrobial resistance being translated into the language and the kind of communication that rings with the local conceptions. So next step will be more and more analysis with the amount of data that we have will probably take years, <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're really excited to see what comes out of this hard work in the past five to six months.
0: I can imagine you're extremely excited. So how do you, uh, just to wrap up now, how do you expect both the, the methodological findings from your work, you know, the work you've done around using satellites to help you sample and get to um, hard-to-reach populations, and what you find from the participants in your study to help with this serious problem of our growing resistance to antibiotics? How do you, how do you expect that to pan out?
1: So we hope that... Uh The methods that we use can also be used by other researchers and therefore enable more social research projects that otherwise would seem difficult and impossible. But actually, we have a range of methodological interventions in our project, uh, innovations, methodological innovations in our project. Um, For instance, the way we analyze health behavior, how we understand what people do when they're sick, uh, and how this behavior could be analyzed within a social network. So there's there's a lot of uh, methodological progress that we are making um, for the research community within this project. There, uh, There's quite a lot that can help us understand antimicrobial resistance and solution better. For example, one thing that we are seeing uh, is a fantastically wide range of interpretations of the term drug resistance, which can mean obviously different things to different people, but to our respondents it occasionally means things like medicine allergy, reluctance to take medicine or even medicine addiction. So there's a lot that we can learn about the complications that arise when one wants, wants to communicate uh, uh, better behavior for antimicrobial resistance and medicine use in general. But uh, because our research also focuses in particular on the lives of the poor marginal groups, marginalized groups, uh, we also have to inspire new approaches to antibiotic resistance beyond education and communication because here we gain a much better understanding of the reason why people take medicine, reasons that are, uh, that are due to the context, poverty, constraints, and hardship. And quite likely, even though it's understood as a medical problem, antibiotic resistance will very, very likely require social solutions as well, and we hope to inspire them.
0: Marco Hinsken and Ern Charanboon were talking to Christine Garrington ahead of their presentation at the 2018 ESRC Research Methods Festival, which takes place in Bath in July. You can find out more about the research at antimicrobialinsociety.org and all the details of the festival are available on the NCRM website at www.ncrm.ac.uk.